0: If you haven't been tracking with us for the past couple of weeks, we've been going through a series called The Pursuit. It's a series going through 1 and 2 Samuel, and in the Bible, 1 and 2 Samuel are actually just one book. Uh, It just got split into two sections that we call 1 and 2 Samuel because of the need when they went from scrolls to books to have them not be so gigantic. Scrolls could be gigantic more easily, but books had to be more compact, and so they split it into two volumes. That's how we end up with 1st and 2nd Samuel. And we've been going through this book, we're still in the book that we call 1st Samuel. We're still making our way through that. But we've covered some interesting ground along the way. And so if you haven't been tracking with us so far, I encourage you to go back to our website and listen to some of the previous messages cuz you can hear this main theme of the story show up time and time again. The main theme is that people are searching for something. People are searching for something. And in this book, everybody is pursuing something for themselves. Easter is a great illustration of that, or a reminder at least. I remember when my kids were young enough to have my wife schedule Easter bunny appointments at our house. Today, she didn't schedule an Easter bunny appointment. I'm not exactly sure why she decided an 18-year-old and, you know, that my kids were too old for this, but she didn't schedule one. But anyway, um, so in the past, we've We've had the Easter bunny hide some eggs around the, the living room and the family room and sometimes inside the television compartments and stuff like that. And because we always you know, get a, a strategy guide from the Easter bunny, the adults know where the eggs are. And it's always a frustrating thing for me to watch my children walk right next to one of the eggs that I think is abundantly obvious and just ignore it and move along. Now, each of my kids are here this morning. Katie is up here. Charlie's in the the back running the slides for me. And so um, both of them, you can verify any of my statements with them later on today. But this is my assessment of their approach to the Easter egg hunt. Katie was more like... Do you guys know the story of the tortoise and the hare? Okay. Katie was a little bit more like the hare in the situation. Um, She would she would come down the stairs, and immediately when the word go was given, she would race through the house and find all the obvious eggs, like immediately, and then quit. <laughs> it's my, my perspective. You, anyway, so then my son would walk through the house excru- excruciatingly slowly, looking with intense detail at every area of the house. And Katie would just swoop in, grab an egg, and swoop out while he's still staring at the spot where I knew it was. And so he would just methodically go slowly through the living room, and he might open a drawer, and he might close the drawer, and move on to another drawer, and look in the lamps, because there's always a replacement for a light bulb. Always. And, and look, you know, in all the different nooks and crannies, he'd been around longer. He had three more years of experience, and so he would look at all the nooks and the crannies. But the thing that frustrated me about them both, kids, I'm, I'm letting you know, the thing that frustrated me about, about you both when it comes to the Easter eggs is that where I perceived Katie would quit early, I would also perceive that Charlie would look at the same spot where an egg was multiple times and not find it. And so the whole Easter morning thing for me, not only was I stressed because I had to come here early, there were were some Sundays where I would come here, get ready, and then I would go back home for the egg hunt and then come back here again. And so all I want is I want the eggs to be found fast. And and so I'm there and the whole time I'm just like, oh. and so I'll stand next to one of them and I'll just be like, hmm. And the thing about Easter egg hunting is that we all have our own perspective because we all have our own motivations. And some of us are just in uh, getting the, the easy thing fast. And some of us are willing to work harder for the better thing. But in every case, the pursuit during Easter is supposed to remind us of something about God. It's supposed to remind us that God is in pursuit of us. There's this verse that we've looked at a number of times in, in the books of Samuel that says this, from 1 Samuel chapter 13, 14. It says this, The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people. Now, we know that that is talking about David. But this is Samuel speaking these words to a guy named Saul. And he says to Saul, You have not followed God, and so God has abandoned you. He no longer wants you to be the king. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And what that means is, God is on the hunt for a person who is after him. God is after someone who would be after him. The word after has both of those meanings there. It means that David, for some reason, kind of reflected the heart of God. He was after God's heart. But it also means that David was a person who was pursuing God. And so God pursues the one who pursues him. Now, we are here on Easter Sunday, and Easter Sunday is one of those Sundays that reminds us of uh, some pretty dark times. And so if you don't hear anything else that I say today, if you don't remember anything else that I say, if you forget everything from today, I want you to remember these two things right up front. These two things. If you seek God, He will find you. And it's because He loves you. If you seek God, He will find you because He loves you. There's so many different stories we could look at to illustrate this point. But I'll start with just this obvious truth. This doesn't mean that God is always going to make our lives easy. This doesn't mean that God is always going to make everything work out for us. In fact, just the opposite. The reason people seek God is they feel they've got nothing else. You know how you work. I know how I work. When I've got my life in order, when I've got everything working fine, I'm not motivated to seek God. I'm motivated to seek God when all the other stuff has failed me, when I have failed me, and God is the only hope left, and then I'll seek him. Now, of course, that's not healthy. That's not beneficial, but it's what we do, and the... The truth is that all of us go through those experiences where it feels like what is right and what is good is far away. And it feels like what is close and what is near is all the stuff that's wrong. We've all been in that place where the near stuff feels wrong and the far stuff feels right. That's being in the middle. That's called being in Saturday. On Friday, Jesus is crucified and all of his disciples literally believed he was going to be the king. And you literally cannot have a king when the king is dead. The whole phrase, long live the king. You can't have a king when he's dead. And so on Friday afternoon, when Jesus is crucified and his body is laid in the tomb, everyone stopped following him. You don't follow a dead person, you know exactly where they are at all times. Everyone stopped following Jesus. And on Saturday, it was the moment where everything wrong was close and everything good was far away. And they had no idea that Sunday was coming. And it's in the middle place. It's in that dark place. It's in that scary place where we need the reassurance that God still loves us, where we need the reassurance that if we seek God, He will come to that place and find us. He's not going to wait for us to get out of our own darkness for Him to show up. He's going to come to that place of darkness, find us, and do exactly what we couldn't do for ourselves. We're going to pick it up in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 21, I want you to flip there because this story that we read today is amazing for a couple different reasons. It's amazing for a couple different reasons. But the, most, uh, the thing I want you to start with today is this idea that God shows up in the midst of our middle, in the midst of our Saturday, in the midst of our dark place, God will show up there too. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 21 verse 1, it says, David went to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, why are you alone? Why is no one with you? Quick pause. Uh, If you were here last week, you remember that King Saul, the king, got really mad at David. And David was there in Saul's presence when Saul tried to throw a spear at him three different times. And David ran away after the third time. And he's like, okay, we're going to do another little test. We're going to find out if he's upset that I'm gone or if he really wants me back. And they found out that he was irate that David was gone because he still wanted to kill him. And so then David runs away. That's how the previous chapter ends. David runs away. He's gone. He's on the run. And now he makes his way to Nob. And what we don't see in the verses in between because it doesn't tell us. But by this point in time, as David is running away, there have been some other guys who catch up with him and join him. So he's got a little troop of people now, and so he looks like he's a little militia, a little tiny army, a little band of soldiers kind of running around, and he makes his way to Nob, to the priest there named Ahimelech, and Ahimelech is freaked out, because here's David, and he's got none of the king's people with him, and he's got this like ragtag group of people with him, and Ahimelech is worried, and so he's like, why are you here Alone, why is no one with you? He means, why are none of the king's men with you? And David answered Ahimelech the priest, The king sent me on a mission and said to me, No one is to know anything about the mission I am sending you on. As for my men, I have told them to meet me at a certain place. Um, now, um, that's a lie. Let's, let's just be clear about this. The king had not sent David on any secret mission. The king was trying to kill David. David was a fugitive. David was running away. But he says to the priest that he's still under the service of the king. Now, you can look at this from a number of different angles. You could look at it from one angle and saying that, well, what David is actually doing there is he's still acting like a servant. Even though Saul is trying to kill him and David's running away, David is taking the attitude of a servant. No, I'm still serving Saul on a secret mission that he sent me on, even though he didn't actually send me on it. It's just I'm still serving him because I'm, you know, I'm still on his mission. That's one way to view it. But I think the more accurate way of viewing it is to simply say David is scared himself. David is in that dark place. David is in the place where he has left the comfort and the safety of the king's pass, castle uh, palace. He's left the comfort and safety of the king's presence, and now he is on the run, and he's got a bunch of other people who have joined him, and he's worried about that. He's freaked out about that, but he is scared. And what do we all do when we're scared? We rely on our own ingenuity. We rely on our own resources. And so he can't, he's just a fast-thinking kind of guy. And he's like, oh, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to tell the priest of God the lie that I am still serving Saul, even though Saul is actually trying to kill me. I don't know what side Ahimelech is on. If Ahimelech is on the side of Saul, Ahimelech might also try to kill David. But David's like, got a lie. Let me ask you this question. Don't answer it out loud, but just think it. Should God help a liar? Should God help a fugitive who's running away from the king, lies about it, and lies to the priest? It's not like he's lying just to the the soldier who's about ready to impale him. He's lying to a priest of God. Should God help someone who lies to God's representative. Should God take care of David? Should God meet David in this place of darkness? Should God do anything to help him? Well, let's just be clear. It doesn't matter what you or I think God should do. What matters is what God does. And in this story, God does two miracles for David. Now, I'm calling them miracles because I believe they are God's intervention in humanity. Even though they're not going to look like miracles to you, they're going to look like two gifts, but they are miracles, and I'll show you that. We're going to start with some food. God gives David some miracle food. Write that down. God meets David, and he gives him some miracle food. Take a look at verse 3. In verse 3, David says, Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. Again, here's David, and he seems belligerent. Like, first he lies to the priest, and now he's demanding food from the priest. And he's demanding food as if he is on a mission from the king, right? So he's misrepresenting the king, he's misrepresenting the mission, he's misrepresenting the person, he's misrepresenting all this stuff, he's lying to the priest, and he says, but give me whatever you have on hand, give me your food. Now, as you might say, it'd be a miracle if he gets anything out of this priest, right? Because after all, maybe the priest is also asking the question, should God help this guy? Should God help... This guy. Do you suppose the priest can see through what David is saying here? Do you suppose the priest has heard the rumors that David is on the run from Saul? I don't know any of those answers. All I know is this question. Should the priest do anything to help him? Should God do anything to help him? Again, it doesn't matter what we think God should or shouldn't do. What matters is what God does. Look at verse 4. Through five. But the priest answered, David, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from women. David replied, Indeed, women have been kept from us as usual whenever I set out. The men's bodies are holy even on missions that are not holy. How much more today? Now, you got to understand, this is crazy what he does next. Look at this, verse 6. He says, Now the priest gave him the consecrated bread. Since there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. Okay, now, this is unbelievable. I don't know how comfortable you are with an understanding of how the Old Testament laws worked. But if you have an awareness of what the Old Testament laws are, this is ludicrous. This is absolutely beyond comprehension that the priest would do this thing. See, you probably don't know what this bread is all about. Did you see it was called the bread of the presence? This was very special bread. This was bread that was supposed to be baked and placed on a special golden table Inside the tabernacle where God would meet with His people. okay, And the only people who ever got into the tabernacle were the priests. But there was this special table in the special tent that would hold this special bread. And that bread would be baked and left there because it was a symbol of God's presence with His people at all times. And you're like, how is bread a symbol of God? Like, why? What, what ancient culture ever worshipped the idol of bread? Well, the Israelites never worshipped the bread. The bread was a symbol of the God who always provides. The bread was a symbol of the God whose table always has food on it. The, the bread is a symbol of a God who is always welcoming people to come to His full table. That's what the bread was a symbol of. But the bread had rules. And back in Leviticus 24, we find out one of those rules. Let me share it with you. 24 verse 8 says this. This bread is to be set out before the Lord regularly, Sabbath after Sabbath, on behalf of the Israelites as a lasting covenant. It belongs to Aaron and his sons. Aaron was the first high priest. All of his sons were the, were the priests and high priests that came after that who are to eat it in the sanctuary area because it is a most holy part of their perpetual share of the food offerings presented to the Lord. Here's the rule. Every Sabbath, the bread gets replaced with new bread. Rule number two, the previous bread that is taken off the table. Now, again, this sounds a little weird, I mean, having... Sabbaths only come once a week, you know, and so that means they're only putting out new bread at the beginning of the week. If you did that here in Indiana with any of the bread you buy from the stores, it's gonna get all nasty and fuzzy by the end of that week. But remember, this is in Israel, okay, desert, completely dry, arid conditions in a lot of ways. Plus, they're also not using the kind of um, ingredients that we use for our bread, so they don't have this big, fluffy, you know, soft stuff. It could have been crackers. It could have been something else that they were using. And that kind of stuff might get stale after a week, but it's, it's not going to get fuzzy. Anyway, you put it out on, on Saturday, the Sabbath day for them at the time. You put it out. You take the other stuff away and then the priest and his family eats it. Only the priest and his family eats it. Do you know what happens when something a priest is supposed to touch is touched by someone else, they die. There's this one story of, uh, in in fact it's later, we're going to find it in a a few weeks, maybe a month. There's the story of the Ark of the Covenant of God being brought back towards Jerusalem. And the cart that it's on hits a bump and the Ark begins to wobble. And there's a dude named Uzzah who's worried that the Ark is going to fall and so he puts his hand out to stabilize the ark and he touches the ark and he dies oh and it's not just that what is the day they change the bread do you remember from the the passage what day did they change the bread they change it on the sabbath right and so this bread, he's still got some. It's said there in the, in the passage, in Samuel, it's said in the passage that he had some of this bread of the presence, which is always changed on the day that the new bread is made. And he's got some of this leftover bread that he can give to David, that he does give to David. But why is there still bread there unless this is the day it was changed? That means this is probably the Sabbath. That means David and all his men are, are traipsing around this area on the sabbath the day you're not supposed to do any work that means David is doing the wrong thing on the wrong day in the wrong place asking the wrong guy for the wrong stuff and he's lying to make it happen should God help a guy well we already saw he did David took the bread and he didn't die David and his men are doing some work on on their sabbath day and he didn't die God is is doing a miracle in this moment to not do the miracle of judgment. Does that make sense? Ordinarily, God would do the miracle of judgment on a person like this. And God is doing the other miracle of not giving judgment on a person like this. And some people are like, well, David's this great guy. Of course, you know, God's going to do whatever God wants. No, God is a great God. He doesn't have to fall in line with something that David wants. But that's just the first miracle. The second miracle is that God is going to give David a miracle sword. You might know which sword I'm going to talk about here, but let's find it in the passage. We're going to pick it up in verse 8. Verse 7 is a verse we're going to come back to in a couple weeks because um, verse 7 tells us about the mole in the story, but we, we don't have time to get into that today. So verse 8, David said to Ahimelech, Don't you have a or sword, so, a spear or sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's mission was urgent. Another lie. Because the king's mission was urgent. The priest replied, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There is no sword here but that one. David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. This is a miracle sword, but before I tell you about the sword... I need to tell you about that ephod thing. See, this is weird. This is weird. Ahimelech, we don't know why, Ahimelech has the sword from Goliath. If you remember the story, you kind of know what the Goliath story really all, was all about and what that sword was all about. I'm going to actually read it in just a little bit. But Ahimelech, for whatever reason, has that sword. But this is the cool part. You've got to understand this. The sword is wrapped up, tucked in a corner, hiding behind the ephod. Now, an ephod is an apron. It's like a, a thing that you would wear over the front and over the back. It was a piece of fabric that would wrap like a poncho kind of thing. That's, that's what an ephod kind of looks like. But the ephod is different from an ephod. The ephod was a specific piece of linen ephod fabric that the priest would wear, and it had a specific pocket in the front of it that would hold two things called the Urim and the Thummim. Uh, These were stones, some type of rocks that they would use. Sometimes the Bible calls it casting lots. They would use these rocks somehow to divine the will of God. In fact, God had said that, I don't want you people to do anything by way of sorcery, witchcraft, or divination, but I will give you these two rocks. And you can use these two rocks to help you identify my will. That was the only trinket God gave them in this particular vein. And that those trinkets were to be held in the ephod and Ahimelech had the sword stuck in the corner because who needs a sword when you've got God? Who needs a sword when you've got the vision of God, the word of God, the will of God? The ephod is in front of the sword. That's important. But that's not the only part about this story that's important. The other thing that makes this sword a miracle sword isn't just that God is in front of it in a metaphorical way. The other thing that makes this sword a miracle sword is how it was used in the past. I'm going to share with you the Goliath punchline the end of the story of the Goliath story if you want to go back and read it yourself that's cool it's in 1 Samuel 17 but then I'm going to read you just a couple verses here it says this all of those gathered here this is David taunting Goliath and he says all of those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves for the battle is the Lord what has David asked Ahimelech for he asked him for a sword or a spear right A few months earlier, maybe a few years earlier, he was like, I don't need a sword, I don't need a spear, but now, for whatever reason, he's asking for a sword, and he's asking for a spear. His fear has caught up with him, but back then, he was all courageous, trash-talking David. He's like this no everyone will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands reaching into his bag and taking out a stone he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead the stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground so David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone without a sword in his hand he struck down the Philistine and killed him and here's how it ends David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine sword and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. This sword, the Goliath sword, is a miracle sword because it's a sword you never really need. See, this sword reminds David that he needs God, not the sword. This is the sword that reminds David he doesn't need a sword. Should God give the sword to this man? This guy who needs to rely on God has relied on God. Up until this point, it's relying on God that has gotten him to this point. But now he's lying to the priest. Now he's begging for a sword. Now he's taking the holy bread for himself. So much about this story is so wrong. Should God help this guy? It doesn't matter what we think God should do. What matters is what God does. And what God does... Is he gives the sword to David and David takes it. Now, I'm amazed that a dude like David can wield a sword that Goliath would have. But every single time he picks up the sword that is too heavy for any normal human being to wield. There's got to be this thing nagging in the back of his, in his head that just simply says, Oh yeah, that's right. This is the sword that I didn't even really need. You see... God does something really weird with David. Even though David doesn't deserve it, in his darkest moments, when the darkness is feeding more darkness in his life, out of his own darkness, he's letting the fear take over. He's letting lies persist. He's seeking after his own ingenuity, his own resources. Even though G- David has no He doesn't deserve this at all. God meets him. God found him. In the middle of those dark moments, God found David where he was. And I think about Ahimelech. Ahimelech doesn't have to do any of this stuff for David either, and yet he's demonstrating love for David. Now, you might be still asking the question, what does this have to do about Easter? Well, the better question for us right now is what does this have to do about us? If I'm in a place of darkness, is God going to find me there? If I've done all kinds of bad stuff, if I've lied, if I've misrepresented things, if I've searched for earthly things to solve my problems rather than relying on God, if I've done all the stuff that David had done, would God meet me? I'm going to tell you the answer is a definite yes. And the reason I know it's a definite yes is because Jesus uses the story we just looked at to make a point. In the New Testament, one of the things Jesus teaches is he takes this story from 1 Samuel and he makes the point that we need to hear. And so I want to jump all the way over there with you. It's in Matthew chapter 12. Now, i got to be sure that David did not know he was living out a parable when he was going through all of that stuff. He wasn't lying to Ahimelech because he was trying to illustrate God's grace. He was just living out of his fear. But Jesus tells us the bigger story behind it. Verse 1, chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. We're already starting in the same place. Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry. The men with him are hungry. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. Picking grain on the Sabbath, yeah. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Look, they're they're offending the religious people. Are you tracking with me on this? They're offending the religious people. Keep going. He says, he answered, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only the priests. This is Jesus saying that David did the unlawful thing. Jesus says those words. He says, David went into the place, in the, in the holy place, in the temple, the tabernacle area. Jesus went into, uh, David went into that place. He ate the consecrated bread and it was not lawful for him to do it. Jesus acknowledges that David had done something wrong. Now he doesn't talk about the lying. He doesn't talk about David's obnoxiousness before, before Ahimelech. But he definitely is recognizing that David did something wrong. And Jesus is saying that thing that David did was wrong is an illustration for what's happening right now. What are the disciples doing? They're doing something wrong. It's the Sabbath day. You're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath day. By walking through a field, they were doing work. By harvesting grain from that field, they were doing work. By eating, you could eat, but you couldn't do the harvesting. And so the religious people are offended And Jesus is like, okay, so my disciples did something wrong. Did you know that David also did something wrong? Let's talk about the David story for just a little bit. But Jesus doesn't unpack the David story too much. Instead, he just moves along. Look at verse 5. He says, or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? Now this one's a little bit more complicated to understand. The Sabbath was a day of rest, right? And so everybody in the the nation was supposed to rest and worship God. But (laughs) the priests don't rest on the day everybody else is worshiping God. And so the priests are doing the majority of their work on Sunday. But Jesus, he's got an interesting angle on this. You see, of course, there was an actual law in the Old Testament that specified the priests were supposed to be working on the day of the Sabbath, so they were kind of an exception. But Jesus is highlighting that. He says the priests are doing work on the Sabbath. Here's another law that is being broken in the Old Testament. In fact, it's being broken by God himself in the Old Testament. There's a law that God set up, and then God created an exception for that law for himself, for the priests, to do work on the Sabbath. And Jesus is just about to ask the question about what do you think the law is really all about anyway? He doesn't get there specifically, but he gets very close to it. This isn't a blank, but it's something I want you to know. Throughout Scripture, you're going to find that Jesus doesn't, that God, throughout Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, He doesn't ever work on the basis of law. He always works on the basis of people. Even when there is, like, strong law, He's always working on the basis of people. But, read a little farther, verse 6. Jesus says, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. What? The temple is a symbol of God. There's nothing greater than, I mean, the temple is the, the thing on earth that is greater than anything else on the earth except God himself. God inhabits the temple, so they thought. And so, Jesus is saying there's something now that's greater than the temple. There's only one thing that's greater than the temple, and that's God himself. And Jesus says that thing is here right now, right here. Something greater than the temple, code word, God, is right here right now. Now, if the people got offended over the whole Sabbath thing, they should get offended over this whole blasphemy thing that Jesus, you know, claiming to be God right here in this moment. But he says something greater than the temple is here. And verse 7, if you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. There are two things going on here. One is a bookend. Jesus says something greater than the temple is here, and he also says that he is Lord of the Sabbath, which in other words means that he's in charge of the law of God, which in other words means that he's God. So he says... He says, I'm greater than the temple. I can make decisions that surpass the entire religious establishment. And he also says, and by the way, I'm in charge of the Sabbath. I can decide what people do on the Sabbath. And I'm going to come back to that in just a, just a bit. But it's the thing in the middle of the bookend that I want to just settle in on with you for just a moment. He says, if you knew what this meant, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You might know that comes from the Old Testament. Jesus is quoting something. So let me show it to you from the Old Testament. It's in Hosea chapter 6. It says this, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Burnt offerings are the rule. Mercy is the better rule. Sacrifice is the law. Mercy is the is the better law. See, what Jesus is trying to say here is that in the context of all of the Bible, the context of the Old Testament, New Testament, God has always been the same. God is always a God for whom love trumps law. Love trumps law. That's just who God is. God is never the God who says, you know what, I made this law, I'm going to have to stick with it even though it's going to hurt some people. God never does the, oh, you know, I made this law, wish I could change it, but it's my law, got to go with it. That's not God. God never prioritizes law over love. Love always wins over law. Love trumps law. That's the way it is with God. But then Jesus does this other thing where he says, oh, and by the way, I'm standing here. I'm the one who is Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the one who is greater than the temple. So guess what? Jesus is saying that he is Lord and he trumps law. So if you know Jesus and you know love, law doesn't matter. If you're following Jesus and you're following his path of love, law doesn't matter. And so Jesus is like, okay, so it's the Sabbath. The guys are eating on the Sabbath. Yeah, they're breaking the law. I don't care. They're hungry and I love them. David is lying to the priest. David is asking for a spear and a sword. And Jesus says, don't you get it? We love people. So what if the law says you don't need to eat that bread? The guys are hungry. It's fine. Eat the bread. With God, that's just the point Jesus is trying to make. Love trumps law. And Jesus is Lord, and He trumps law. Let's finish this up. This section is just amazing. Verse 9. Going on from that place, He went into their synagogue, right into the midst of their religious establishment. And a man with a shriveled hand was there. Remember, it's still the Sabbath. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked Him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Stupid question! Wrong question! We don't care if it's lawful or not, right? Law doesn't matter. Law is insignificant. And so this is what Jesus answers. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Listen to this, verse 11. He said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. It's lawful to do a good thing. It's lawful to show this guy some love. That's what's lawful. I don't care what's written in the text. Love trumps law. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out. And it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Don't let this slip your attention. It's the law of love that got Jesus crucified. Jesus emphasizing that loving people was more important than keeping strict adherence to this particular code. That following Jesus was more important than keeping strict adherence to this particular code. Because Jesus put love over law, they killed him. And you and I aren't any different. There's nothing more offensive in this world to people of power than love trumping law. People in power operate on the principles of law. People in power, people who want power operate in the principles of law. They make up their own laws but they still want laws so they can enforce those laws on other people. That's how their power works. But as soon as you integrate love into this whole equation, all of a sudden people with power are threatened. People with religious significance, people with religious authority, people with practical and secular authority. It doesn't matter who you are. As soon as love enters the picture, law begins to dissipate and no one knows how to hold on to power when there's all these people loving each other around them. And that's what gets Jesus killed. And that's what caused the Christians to get martyred in the earliest centuries of our faith. The love they showed for everybody around them was unsettling to the world. And people of power and law can't handle it. And so those who are people of love get killed. Verse 15. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. That's the first thing, justice. He will not quarrel or cry out. Jesus went to the cross without complaining or arguing or quarreling or crying out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. Oh, there's so many people who look for people who are wounded and just break them the rest of the way. There are people who look for people who are weak and they just step on top of them because they're already weak. Let's just go ahead and step on them all the way. But not Jesus. A bruised reed he's not going to break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. There's someone who's barely hanging on to life. They're just, everything is crumbling. It's darkness all around them. It's just the very tiniest little flame. And Jesus is not going to come up and snuff that out. Till he has brought justice through to victory. And in his name, the nations put their hope. Listen. The thing that we need to know about Easter is that Easter is the story of justice being brought through all the way to victory. You see, justice from one perspective was killing this rogue religious leader. Some people thought that was justice. What it really was, was that you and I deserved death because of our own sin. You and I deserved death punishment from God because of all of the stuff that we've done to to lie and steal and cheat and and convince other people that we're better than we actually are and all of that stuff because of all the bad stuff that we've done all of the ways we've manipulated the people around us all of the ways we've tried to manipulate God because of all that bad stuff we deserve judgment we don't deserve the special bread we don't deserve the amazing miracle sword we don't deserve any of that stuff but Jesus took the punishment for us That's a different kind of justice. That's punishment being served on the wrong person so that we could be lifted up away from it. God works our justice on Him, but He doesn't stay dead. He brings that justice all the way through to victory, to resurrection, now, I know for you and for me, this, all this stuff, it, it can feel really kind of scary. It's like, well, wait a minute. If I become a person of love, people are just going to walk all over me. And I'll say, okay, let's just cover two very basic fundamentals. Number one, Jesus is Lord and his law is love. That's the first basic fundamental. If you're taking notes, write that down. Jesus is Lord and his law is is love. So if you get nothing else out of this, you get this idea that Jesus is in charge of you and the one thing He wants is for us to be people of love. But there's more. And this comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 15. I'll put it up here. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Paul's point is that Jesus died for you. You didn't deserve it. Jesus died for you and for me. Because God has always operated on the basis of love, not law. And there was a law that put you in danger of punishment but there's a God who loves you too much for that. And so he sent his son into this world to pay the justice penalty for our sins, to go all the way through the depths of the cross into the grave, and three days later to come back alive again, to bring justice all the way through to victory. And now because of the love that caused him to go through that, you and I who've received the victory, you and I who know about the victory, are the people who can continue to walk in the love. Listen, there might be some time where you're afraid that someone might walk all over you. Who cares? You know why? Because we're not worried about the crucifixion. We're rejoicing in the resurrection. We're not people who are you know, all concerned about the death. We're people who are paying attention to the life. We're the kind of people who are moving through the law of love towards the life that Jesus promises us. And Easter proves it. Today I imagine you're one of three different kinds of people. Maybe today you're David. And you're in the midst of a dark place, and there's all this bad stuff around you, and you're trying to just make it work. You're, you're scared, you're, you're trying to grasp at the straws around you, and you're trying to say, okay, I need a sword, I need a spear, I need something, where can I get these things? And, and you'll lie to get what you want, and, and you'll, you'll connive and sneak and deceive to try to get some bread, or to try to get a, a sword. And Maybe you're in the position of David, and you're in that dark place, and you just need someone to to come to you and show you some love and remind you that God will find you there. And if that's you today, God can find you here right now. Just say, God, I need you. I thought I needed the sword. I thought I needed the bread, but I need you. David received the bread of the presence. David got the sword that he never had to use. Maybe you're David today. And just say, God, I need you here. Maybe today you're a Himalek. Maybe you're the guy who has the resources. You've got the bread. You've got the sword. And someone who doesn't deserve it has come up to you. And they're asking for something you know they don't deserve. And they're asking for something that you really want to make a point that they don't deserve. And yet, God wants to meet them you. And so maybe you're a Himelech and you're the and person who needs to make love be the law in this moment, even though it would sure be nice to just let the other person know where they stand. Or maybe, and I hope this is not the case, maybe you're one of the Pharisees who sees the law getting broken, and that's all you can take. You see the rules not being followed, and that's all you can handle. You see the problem going on around you and you're just fed up. And the only thing you can think of is to just kill the thing that's threatening. I hope that's not you. I hope you and I can be the kind of people who say, hey, I am David, I need God. And also say, hey, I'm a I need to show some love. Because Jesus is Lord. And his law is love. For you and through you, for me and through me. We're going to sing one more song that just focuses on the fact that the kingdom of God is not about power structures. The kingdom of God is about the meek. The kingdom of God is about his presence in our midst. The kingdom of God, as proven by the resurrection, is about victory that has flown through this process of darkness. Let me pray for us. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And His plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.